What do you do, or rather I should say, who do you blame when everything goes bad? The late American businessman Robert Half said, the search for someone to blame is always successful. You can always find someone to blame, whether it is in your company, your business, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a community, your neighborhood, or even when it's in your family, you can find someone to blame. I plead guilty of this, to this myself. On a few occasions, I have blamed one of my children for doing something to find out later that it was me who had lost the set of keys or something like that. We, we all want to blame someone. And often this blame goes all the way to the top. In corporations, it's not the marketing company or the sales department where the blame finally lies, but all the way to the top, often with the chief executive officer who has to hand in his res resignation because he's overseeing it all. Well, the question occurs to me, who do we blame when we suffer, when everything goes bad? We can often find someone to blame, someone who actually did us harm, someone who made us sick, <laughs> someone who caused our financial instability. But it also occurs to me that we have to take things further to the top if we're going to blame someone. Recognizing God is the one who is ultimately sovereign even over our suffering. Some have recognized this and it causes them to become angry with God. They, they do know that God is sovereign and so it makes them angry with God and they vow to never attend church again or they vow to never worship him again or to trust him again. I have known cases where this has happened. For others, they trust the sovereignty of God. They know he is in control and yet it causes them to begin to doubt either his goodness or his care for you individually. How do we respond to suffering? Who do we blame for suffering? What do we do when we suffer? I think in order to understand our own life and life in this world, we must first understand who God is. And so in a like manner, in order to understand our own suffering, to be able to make sense of it, we first need to get an understanding of the suffering of the Son of God. And then we will be able to make sense of our own suffering in light of and in the context of the God who came down and suffered for us. The title of our sermon this morning is He Suffered Under Pontius Pilate. Over the next four weeks, we will be entering into a series of sermons based on the Apostles' Creed, based on what we confess each month when we say that Jesus suffered that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again from the dead, culminating in Resurrection Sunday as we worship our risen Savior. And this is different than our typical diet of sermons because typically we're making our way through books of the Bible. And I think that's the most helpful kind of diet uh, of sermons. But for these weeks, some will be expository right from a, a particular passage others like this one will be more of a topical 
approach. We don't do it often, but I think it's a, a legitimate approach as we focus in, as we zero in and consider the suffering of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? And my hope is, one, that we would have a deeper understanding of what it is we are confessing each month in the Apostles' Creed. He confessed under Pontius Pilate is the tip of the iceberg, and we're exploring just a portion of the underneath part of the iceberg in this particular sermon. Hopefully it will inform us as we confess that we'll, we'll be able to remember some of these things, what it means we are confessing. But also, I, I, it's my hope that from this sermon, as we consider the suffering of Jesus, we will be enabled and empowered to suffer well and for God's glory and to know his goodness and care for us even in the midst of such suffering. So to do this, I want us to consider three truths about Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. Three truths, and I'll name them for you so you can go ahead and get those in your mind, get the framework on, on paper or in your mind. We'll consider its reality, its unjustness, and its predestination. Its reality, its unjustness, and its predestination. So we'll start with its reality, the reality of Jesus' suffering. Now, maybe I don't need to convince you of this, but some believe that we as believers are following a religion that was just made up. Some, some insist Jesus didn't even exist. So the first aspect of the reality we need to consider is its historical reality. That we are not confessing a, a fiction. We are not confessing a fairy tale, something we simply wish to be true. We are confessing historical reality. Jesus really suffered under Pontius Pilate. People may say that the gospel writings, the other writings, they weren't really intending for us to take it so seriously, perhaps. Maybe they wanted us to learn certain moral truths. They didn't mean for us to take it historically accurate or factual and yet the picture that you get as you walk through Matthew Mark Luke and John as you walk through the acts as you walk through the epistles that are written is that these who wrote who were with Jesus many of them actually believed what they were writing they're presenting to us truths in history now the writings are theological in nature they are they are not simply giving a narrative they have uh, purposes. They have aims, theological purposes and aims, and yet we could call it a theological narrative because everything that they write, it has the marks of truth, of fact, even from the idea of confessing Pontius Pilate. The Gospels list real people, names of places, historical events that are true. And this should lead us to have great confidence in the reliability of the witness that we have. Many of these are face-to-face -face witnesses with the events which took place. But the second aspect of the reality of Jesus' suffering we must consider is the human reality of Jesus' suffering. He did not simply appear to be a human, Jesus actually became a human. He took on flesh, as Jason pointed out earlier this morning. 
He didn't just appear to suffer. He didn't just appear to struggle with inner turmoil. Jesus suffered in reality as a human. We see this through the passage that was just read. Imagine the horrible physical pain that Jesus endured. This is God becoming flesh and suffering in a way that none of us could ever imagine. But how many of you have had a a headache and it only affects you physically? When you suffer physically, it affects you in other ways, doesn't it? it? It affects you emotionally and mentally. It affects you in a host of other ways because you are a human. You are a whole human being, body and soul. You have emotions. You have thoughts. You have feelings. So when we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we are confessing that he suffered as a human in all of these ways. Jesus suffered having the full range of human experience. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered, we could say, psychologically. He suffered in all of these ways of what it means to be a human. And this, brothers and sisters, is why he can sympathize with you and understand your sufferings. Have you ever been through a a time of suffering and a well-meaning person comes to you and says, I know exactly what you're going through. Why, just a few years ago, I went through this and that and that. And you knew they were well-meaning, but if you were honest, you'd have to admit that didn't help you very much. Maybe we're conflicted within us because we do want someone to understand We do want someone who has been through similar struggles. And yet, for someone to say, I know exactly what you've been through, seems to make light of our own suffering. We need to know someone cares. We need to know someone loves us. Perhaps understanding what someone's going through is better left unsaid and shown instead. Let me show you how I understand. As a pastor, I often have to try to comfort others. It's, it's a task that I've been working at for over 15 years as a pastor, and I am still learning and growing. It is so difficult to know what to say to how and how to care for someone who is in pain. For fear of saying the wrong things, often I have gotten to the habit early, intentionally, of saying something to the effect of, I can't imagine what you're going through. But as I reflect on that, I wonder if if maybe that's not the most helpful either. Because there is a sense in which each one of us can understand what a brother or sister is going through simply because we are human. Maybe by analogy. There are different degrees of suffering, but we have all suffered in similar ways. So I have mentioned before that in 98 I had malaria and I would venture to bet few of any of you have ever had malaria but you can understand in a sense my own suffering as I suffered with fever and chills and throwing up you've had stomach bugs you've had flu perhaps so there's a sense in which maybe even though you haven't had malaria you can sympathize with me in my suffering And I think this is what the author of Hebrews means in Hebrews chapter 4, 
14 through 16, when it speaks of Jesus being able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You might be able to justify not being comforted because nobody has been through what you've been through. Or even maybe Jesus, you might could say, he hasn't been exactly through every trial and tribulation that I've suffered. And yet the author of Hebrews is making the point that because Jesus is human, that he became human, and he suffered all sorts of trials and temptations, yet he didn't sin like you and I have in our trials and temptations. This is why Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your weaknesses. This is why Jesus can understand your trials and tribulations, because he suffered as a human. And this is why he is able to feel with you in a sense. That's what sympathize, sympathize there means. Feeling with another. Understanding what another is going through. This is why Jesus is able to serve as a great high priest for us. A mediator for us. He became human. He really was human and suffered as a human. And because of that, he cares for you and sympathizes with you in your weakness. Receive comfort from this from Jesus' suffering as a human for you. The author of Hebrews says, because of that, we have confidence to draw near to the Father's throne. And you know what you're going to get when you draw near to the Father's throne? You who are suffering, you who are filled with sorrows, when you draw near to the throne of God, it's going to give you grace in your time of need. Draw near to the throne of God in Jesus Christ. But consider also not only the reality of Jesus' suffering. Consider the unjustness of Jesus' suffering. It It was unjust from a human point of view, from a human perspective. The suffering of Jesus was unjust. We see that in a couple of places in the Gospels. John 18, 38. There we read, After Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Innocent. And then in the passage we just saw in Matthew 27, look at verse 23. They they called out, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? The answer is none. He's done nothing. And look even at the words of Pilate's wife. In verse 19, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So here we have Jesus who is declared innocent by the ruler Pilate and who is declared righteous by Pilate's wife. And yet he suffers. Why should an innocent and righteous man suffer? And yet we have this very thing foretold in Scripture as the prophet Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Or we read a couple verses later. He was numbered with the transgressors. Even though he wasn't one, he was numbered with them and he bore the sins of many. It was unjust the way Jesus suffered and died. 
perhaps this is a, a helpful way for us to engage our culture at this particular time because our culture does seem particularly aware, at least in some ways, of injustice. Right? We're all looking out for injustices everywhere. It happens in every realm of our existence. It happens in sports. In the NFC Championship, the Saints played the Rams. And toward the end of the game, the Saints player was going up for a catch, and it seemed inevitable he was going to catch it until the Rams player just blew him out of the way. It was an obvious pass interference call. So for those of you who aren't familiar with sports, you have to be allowed to catch the ball. You can't be shoved right before you catch the ball. And this was so obvious, everybody, no matter who you were pulling for, you were willing to agree, yes, that was not fair. That should have been a penalty, no doubt. And it resulted in a lot of anger. Maybe I've stirred up a little anger in, in your, your hearts if you're a Saints fan. It resulted in fans being so angry because it's not fair. Also, as a result, the NFL is going to now make those pass interference calls reviewable, which personally I think is going to totally ruin the game. They're reviewing so many things. But how much more anger should we get at injustices which involve the lives of our fellow human beings? Maybe your mind's already turned there, but we, have to, we cannot go without mentioning the horrible injustice of babies whose lives are taken in their mother's wombs. Innocent human life snuffed out before they even have a chance. And we should be angry about that. It's right to be angry about that. We shouldn't sin in our anger. We shouldn't respond in violence or in hatred. And yet it should arouse within us an anger at the injustice which is being, taking place in our nation in mass numbers. So then, how much more angry ought to be in situations like abortion and how much more anger ought we to have when we consider that the Son of God Almighty was unjustly and brutally beaten and scorned and mocked and hung on a cross? That should arouse some anger in our hearts at the injustice that was done to God in human flesh. We could direct our anger toward the Romans who crucified him, who carried out the beatings, who spit on him, who mocked him. We could, care, we could direct our anger perhaps toward the Jewish leaders who instigated it all, who forced it to happen. But if we're honest, you know where we'll have to place the ultimate blame for the injustice which was done to Jesus Christ. It was your sin, brothers and sisters. It was my sin which carried out this injustice upon Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, how do I respond to my own sin? Am I angry at my sin? Does it arouse that sort of righteous indignation in me Hatred towards my sin. That how could I do such a thing to such a loving God? 
He's cared for me every day of my life. Even though I don't deserve it, he has given grace upon grace to me in so many ways that I could not number if I tried, and yet I sin against him. Repentance means changing your mind. And changing your mind about your sin is an important aspect of that. Where we take on the very mind of God in considering our sin and have anger and hatred toward the very sins we commit. And we find, yet again, his grace to us in the injustice that was done to Jesus Christ because it is by his stripes we have been healed. It is because of his suffering that we can be forgiven. Your sin, brothers and sisters, for any and all of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ to cling upon him and to plead out for mercy from him, You have been saved by grace apart from your works. Every one of your sins that pinned Jesus Christ to the cross has been forgiven, has been cast into the sea and forgotten, and you now stand before God and he declares you righteous. And now God is both just and the justifier of those who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. The suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate should be a great joy to us because we recognize that in it we have our salvation. Not anything that you have done or could do, but only in what Jesus Christ has done in his perfect life and in his sacrificial death for your sins. You are forgiven full and free, brothers and sisters. It was unjust, but it was unjust for our salvation. But consider finally the predestination of the suffering of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. Consider its predestination. In Acts chapter 4, we read Peter speaking to his, his brothers and sisters as they are suffering, and he is preaching. He's preaching the word to them. Now pick it up in verse. 24, where they begin to lift up their voices together to God. And they say, and it says, Sovereign Lord, they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed They apply in their prayer this psalm to the situation surrounding Jesus. And then they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God's hand, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place and now lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant jesus in the midst of the suffering of jesus christ and all that surrounded his suffering and all the parties that were involved 
the apostles pray and say, it was your hand, God. It was your plan, God. The greatest sin in all of history, John Piper calls it, uh, one of the, the spectacular sins, the greatest spectacular sin carried out by sinful human beings, even this was under the sovereign hand and plan of God. Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate was predestined. And with this, we must conclude a few things, but one of them is that the rulers of this world and the rulers of evil are not in control. They are not in ultimate control. Neither are the sufferings which you endure. Rather, God himself is in control. When my kids were little, they were learning to ride bikes. And you know some of the procedure. You have to, to carry them along a little ways on their bike so that they don't fall, so that they'll keep trying. If you let them fall right away, they're, they're not going to keep going. And then you get to, I got to a stage where I would hold on to the back of the seat and be running along with them as they, as they carried on down the road. And then I would, I would let go. I would let go. And I knew what was going to happen as a result of me letting go. They were going to succeed for a little while, but more than likely, they were also going to fall. And I knew that was going to take place. And yet, I also knew that there was a, a good reason for it and a good purpose for me letting go and them falling on their bicycle. In the moment, they probably couldn't see the good purposes from that. They were probably upset with me. Why did you let go? But in the long run, it turned out for their good, and they were able to learn how to ride bicycles. Now, this illustration is only by analogy because when I speak of my control over the, the situation, it's only in a limited sort of sense, right? I'm, I'm letting go of the bike, and then if I decided I wanted to control them so I wouldn't let them fall, I could just kind of, with my mind, make them stay up without falling, right? I don't have that sort of control. And so this is only by analogy. But if that is true of me as a parent, being in control of that situation, how much more true it is of, it is of God Almighty who is in absolute control of all things, of all sufferings, of all trials, of all tribulations, of anything and everything we can endure, the sovereign God is in control. And could it be that in the midst of our sufferings, he has some other purpose in view? that we don't quite see the, the good of, that we can't quite see from his perspective. But he is working, and he's willing, and he's moving for his own glory and for your good, if you are in Christ. Can you believe that, brothers and sisters? I want to plead with you to believe that, that in your suffering, God has promised us that his purposes are beyond our purposes. That though we cannot see what his aims are, what his designs are, he is working, he assures us, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good pleasure. This is a comfort to us, not just because God is sovereign, but also because he is so, so good. And because he is both sovereign and good, you can be assured that he is working 
in care, in loving care for you in the midst of your trial and tribulation. We know, we know that he's good and sovereign because of what we've already seen and because of what we're looking at right now because the death, suffering and death of Jesus Christ was a part of the plan of God. We also see this, and I owe this, this, this insight to John Piper in Revelation chapter 1838, an amazing passage about the sovereignty of God in salvation where it's speaking of those who worship the beast and it says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. And listen to this part. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So did, did you catch that? There is this figurative language, but there is a book that has names written in it that were written in it before the foundation of the world, and the book is called The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Somehow in the mysterious nature of who God is and the mysterious plan of God. The Lamb who was slain has been envisioned since before the foundation of the world. It was no accident the fall in the garden. It was no accident the sins of mankind whom God wiped out with the flood. It was no accident. It was not trial and error as God's people in Israel failed and tried again and failed and tried again. It was not God trying to learn how to do better. And it was no accident that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered and died in the place of sinners. It was for us, our salvation, brothers and sisters. And therefore, we can also conclude it is no accident. God is not taken by surprise by your own sufferings. But He is working and willing for his glory and for your good. 